I have had the privilege of leading our teen group and studying Ephesians on Wednesday nights. I just want to say here at the start um, to parents, if your teens are not currently involved in our teen ministry, um, I want to encourage you that we would love to have them join us. We as a church want to team with parents in caring for the souls of our children. Um, as a teacher, um, every single week when I teach, I am committed as best as I can to teaching in a way that is clear, um, that is practical, and that is meaningful for their lives. Um, I and our other leaders, we want to invest in them, we want to have fun with them, and we want to see them grow. And so, just here to start, um, if you would like to learn more about our teen ministry, I would love to talk with you, share with you what we do and why we do it. This morning, Joe asked if I would do three things. First, he asked if I would summarize some of what the teens have been studying. He asked that I would, too, um, feed us as a church, um, feed our congregation with the, the rich, the rich, rich truth that's in this part of the Bible. And uh, he asked that I would specifically encourage um, the three individuals who have just been baptized, Aaron, Mel, and Catherine. Um, at the start of the study, I told the teens that I am motivated by two pastoral burdens in leading them to study this particular book of the Bible. Number one, and this is at the heart of everything that I do in our teen ministry, I am passionate about doing everything I can to help our teens understand the gospel. I want them to learn the gospel. I want them to love the gospel, and I want them to live the gospel. Um, we have a, a great group of kids um, of the group that we have. Um, some of them are still exploring Christianity. Um, they're trying to figure out, like, do they believe this? Is this true? What does it mean for their lives? They've got questions. They're trying to find answers. Um, some of our teens, they've, they've already decided. They've already turned from their sins. They're trusting in Jesus. They want to grow. And I just want to say that I am thankful that we have all of them in our group. We need all of them in our group. All of them saved and unsaved. They need to hear the gospel. And uh, Ephesians is a great place for that. So that's the first burden. My burden is that they know the gospel. Second burden is I want them to understand God's design for the local church. I want them to know the incredible work that God is doing in ordinary churches like ours. Wherever they land as adults, I want them to invest themselves in the biggest thing that Jesus is doing today. The biggest thing that Jesus is doing in the world today is building his church. He made that promise. He promised that he would build his church and nothing, not even the gates of hell, would stop its advance. That's the biggest thing he's doing in the world today, and I want our teens to catch a vision for what Jesus is doing in the world. So wherever they are, they invest themselves in that. So for that reason, I've entitled our study Ephesians, the fusion of gospel and church, how God saves us from ourselves and brings us into community with others. As far as what to expect this morning, um, I'm going to start off and share the context of the passage we're studying. I will then teach and explain the passage in two parts. Um, each part has five points, and uh, then in the middle of the explanation, I will give what I think is the main point of the passage. Um, after that, I will, actually as I do that, I'm going to weave in three practical points of application. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would this morning as we study this powerful and precious text, I pray, God, that you would, by your mighty grace, save sinners this morning. 
that you would turn their hearts to believe in Jesus and to follow him for the rest of their days. And I pray, God, that you would take this truth that's meant for Christians. I pray, God, that you would work it deep into our hearts and use it to strengthen us, to humble us, to give us peace, and to compel us to greater love and service to you, our King. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, like I said, here at the start, I'm going to share a little bit of the context of Ephesians. There's something about doing a standalone message like this, that we are literally just parachuting into the middle of the book. And I don't want to assume that everyone here is familiar with the passage that we're studying. And uh, so, first of all, you know that Ephesians, it's a short letter. Um, It was written to believers who were living in and around the ancient city of Ephesus. Um, The city was located in what is now modern-day Turkey. Um, It was on the western coast of the, uh, not far from the Aegean Sea. The author of this letter was the Apostle Paul. Um, He's one of the most significant figures in biblical history. He wrote 13 books of the New Testaments. Um, The book of Acts records much of his life and ministry. And uh, Paul actually used to be somebody who, um, who hated Jesus Christ. The author of this letter used to persecute and murder Christians. But the risen King Jesus radically intruded into his life, basically said, Paul, you're mine. Set his love on Paul and said, Paul, you are my chosen instrument to bring this message to the Gentiles. And uh, Jesus turned a persecutor into a preacher. Um, In fact, word spread among the believers at that time that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And one of the things I've tried to bring out for our teens is, as, as Paul is describing this incredible gospel and this amazing grace that saves and transforms lives try to help them remember this is not just this abstract theory for Paul this is his personal experience it's his personal testimony he was somebody who who didn't just hear the gospel think about it and decide I want to ask Jesus into my heart no he was radically opposed to Christianity and yet God by his grace reached out grabbed Paul turned his heart and said you're mine and employed him into service and so Paul then writes from personal experience of God's amazing transforming grace he probably wrote this letter while he was himself imprisoned in Rome At the time of his writing he was probably in his early 60s um, he's nearing the end of his life and he wrote Ephesians He wrote Ephesians as a manifesto for the church, describing its essence and identity, who it is, how it came about, how it must conduct itself, and what its mission is within the larger framework of Christ's cosmic rule. The letter itself begins with Paul worshiping God. We talk with the teens about how theology, the study of God, should always lead to doxology, the worship of God. And uh, that's actually what Paul models right from the start. Paul begins this letter. He begins Ephesians by worshiping God. In the first big paragraph, I know we're going to be in chapter 2, but if you look back over at chapter 1, the first paragraph, it's one crazy long sentence. And in that first paragraph, he just piles on reason upon reason for praising God. He praises God for God's spiritual blessings, for his election of undeserving sinners, for Christ spilling his blood on the cross, for his forgiveness and adoption, and redemption, for his rule, and his reign, for his plan, and his promises, and his presence. And so Paul praises God for what he knows is true about God, and then he prays that the believers themselves, that they themselves would increase in what they know about God. 
That's all context. That brings us to where we are today. Now in chapter 2, Paul is actually going to turn the truth, and he's going to focus more personally on the believers themselves. I just want to note here at the start, Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to believers, to men and women who have believed the gospel. They have decided to turn from their sins. They've committed themselves to following Jesus. So let's read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And here at the start, I want you to notice how this passage is set up. Paul starts verse 1 with the words, And you. And he's getting personal. He's talking about their personal, individual lives. What was true of the believers before their salvation? And if you just skim over what he's describing in those first three verses, you see that their prior condition before Christ saved them, it was disastrous. But then in verse 4, we see two precious words that change everything. But God. And here, Paul pivots. He changes direction. He gives us one of the most powerful and beautiful transitions ever written. And in a nutshell, Paul is basically saying, and you were like this, but God did this. He's writing to believers and he wants them to know this is what was true of you. And he's inviting them to marvel at the grace that God has shown to them. And so we're going to look at this in these two parts. Part one is what was true of believers before salvation. And then in part two, of this message, we're going to look at what did God do about it? What did God do in spite of our condition? So, part one, you were like this, verses one through three. Part two, but God did this, verses four through ten. And uh, just a reminder, we're going to be looking at five points under each heading. And Christian, remember, this is what was true of you before God saved you. So, number one, and you were spiritually dead on arrival. The term dead on arrival, sometimes just abbreviated DOA, is sometimes used by first responders or by doctors when they encounter a patient who is clearly and unquestionably deceased. There is no hope for resuscitation. There is no chance that the person's life can still be saved. It is too late. There is no life there left to save because they're dead. And Paul uses that sort of bleak and tragic imagery 
to describe our natural spiritual condition before God. Look at verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Do you get the picture that Paul is painting? We were not on the surface of the water, flailing our arms, drowning, and at the last moment God saved us. The picture that Paul is painting is we were dead at the bottom of the ocean. There was no life in us. There was no hope. Nothing was going to get better from that condition. There was no breath in your lungs. You were dead. You were a corpse. We do not like talking about death, especially in our culture, because it is awful, which is true, and it is offensive. It's offensive to our inherent sense of human dignity. I would even say a sense of dignity given to us by God. It is offensive to us. It is, it is, it is uncomfortable to talk about. And one of the things that Paul starts here with is, Christian, you need to come to terms with the fact that before God, your moral condition was like that of a disgusting, decaying corpse. There was no life in you. There was no hope for you. There was no future. You were dead. And Paul goes on. It's more than that you were just spiritually dead. You were also fascinated with a world that hates God. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And when Paul says following the course of this world, he's referring to the entire system of human culture that is in rebellion against God. This whole system of human culture that rejects God, that ignores God, that blasphemes God, that, that, that spits in the face of the one who literally made everything. That is the world in which Paul is describing. Following the course of this world, it means that you just went along with it. You got swept away in the deceit and the deception. You bought into the endless lies that your culture was feeding you. You believed things like this, that life was all about physical pleasure. And so you chased meaning and satisfaction through things like money and drugs and sex and entertainment and alcohol. You try to find meaning. You try to find significance in life through, through, through adventure and experiences. You bought in lies like that life is all about making a name for yourself, about achievement and status symbols, about who you know and what you've accomplished, about getting the perfect house or the perfect spouse, raising the perfect kids. You bought in lies like this, that life itself can be explained without God. You trusted scientists because of their impressive credentials, their powerful intellects. And rather than worshiping the creator, you worship the creation. You were swept away. You were fascinated with the world that hates God. Third, you were loyal to Satan. Not only that, Christian, but you were loyal to Satan. Most likely, without even realizing it. That's the next thing that Paul says. He says, you are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who is the prince of the power of the air? It is Satan, the father of lies. Satan is the supreme leader of the God-hating world. Satan was originally created by God as a magnificent creature, and yet Satan filled with arrogance and pride, desired to be God. God threw him out of heaven. And right now, Satan has some measure of influence over this world, but God has promised a day when Satan will finally be defeated. In Colossians 1, Paul 
writes about how for believers we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And that kind of sets everything up in kind of two categories. In other words, if Jesus is not your king, Satan is. You might not have realized that. You might have been deceived by the father of lies. But make no mistake, if you are not a part of Christ's kingdom, that you are a willing citizen in Satan's. Paul goes even further, verses 2 to 3. You were also a slave to your own desires. He says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, your selfish desires controlled you. Paul is describing, it's like this zombie like existence. You were spiritually dead towards God, but very much alive toward evil. You did what you wanted, when you wanted, with whom you wanted, whenever you wanted. And you and I, we didn't want to do any differently than that. We were slaves to sin. It wasn't just that I couldn't be good. It's that in my nature, I didn't want to be good. Not as God defines good. Verse 3 says that we carried out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, we we sin constantly. We sin both with the things we did with our bodies externally, but we even sin with the things that we thought and that we craved internally. Whether private or public, none of this, internal, external, none of this sin was hidden before God. We were sinners through and through. And finally, and most devastatingly of all, Paul says... We were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Number five, you were the object of God's wrath. In other words, every single person is under the wrath of God. God says in Psalm 711 that he is angry with the wicked every single day. Angry with the wicked every day. His righteous, holy anger is directed against all perpetrators of evil in all places. And notice that it's not just enough to say that God hates evil. That is very much true. But God also hates evildoers. It says directly in Psalm 5.5. And he must. The act cannot be separated from the one who does the act. If someone were to murder my child, I would not be angry at the concept of murder. I would be angry at the murderer. If you're guilty of lying, God is not angry with the concept of lying. He's angry with you, the liar. His wrath is directed toward people, not concepts. And according to this verse, we are all the deserving targets of God's wrath. But I want you to remember that Paul right here, he's writing to Christians. I think he's showing us that it is right to to think soberly and reflect seriously on who we were before Jesus saved us. Like I said, I'm, I'm weaving in three points of application as we go. And so here's the first one. First point, and I'm going to direct this to Tri-County, but I'm specifically going to address this to Aaron and to Catherine and then Mel. So, first point of application. Tri-County, Aaron, Catherine, and Mel. Never forget how desperate your condition was before Christ saved you. Never forget how desperate your condition was before Christ saved you. I'll give you two points on this. First, remember the misery. 
You look at verses 1 to 3. Do you see yourself reflected in them? One of the most one of the things that was most sobering and powerful about the testimonies of the three who got baptized, both what they shared um, when they were up front, but also in their written testimonies that have been handed out, is to hear them describe what their life was like before Christ saved them. They said things like this. I lived in the world. I struggled with a general disdain towards other people, alcoholism and addiction. I stopped caring about life. I felt like garbage. I was unjoyful depressed, angry, miserable, wishing I was dead. Christians, do you remember life before Christ? Or have you forgotten? Some of you, like me, were saved young in life by God's grace. And you ought to consider, where would I be right now if Christ had not saved me? Where would this sinful heart of mine, where would this heart have taken me if Christ had not intervened? And I think about that often. I think apart from Christ, I would be characterized by arrogance and vindictiveness. I would live for pleasure. I would live for myself. I know how much I struggle with, a Christian, with a sin as a Christian. And so I'm thinking, if I didn't have the Holy Spirit working in my life, where would this heart have taken me? And that thought is terrifying to me. But it's more than life without Christ is just miserable. I also want to encourage you to reflect on the helplessness of it. So remember the misery, but also remember the hopelessness. Do you remember how hopeless you were? That you were dead. Dead. You were dead in your sins. That you were absolutely, utterly, entirely helpless. Or do you still think, I wasn't that bad, or I wasn't as bad as some people. (laughs) Here's the thing about being dead. It's an equalizer. We are all absolutely equal in how helpless we were. None of us was, well, I was less dead. We're not talking Princess Bride. This is different. We're all dead. This is an equalizer. All of us were in the exact same situation. And it's devastating. We were all dead in our sins. There was nothing that any of us could do. Nothing. Because dead people stay dead. Apart from a miracle from God, death is the end of the story. And that's why I think that this right here is the main point of this passage. I think that Paul's main point here is this, that salvation is a miracle. God mercifully raises dead sinners to life, graciously saving them from his wrath, rescuing them from slavery, and then deploying them to do good in the world. Salvation is a miracle. God mercifully raises dead sinners to life, graciously saving them from his wrath, rescuing them from slavery, and then deploying them to do good in the world. And for the rest of the sermon, we're going, to, we're going to enjoy the view. Working through the first three verses is, is unpleasant. Like, I don't like looking at, this is where I would be, this is where I was before Christ saved me. We've come this far. This is the main point. And for the rest of the sermon, we get to enjoy. That's where we were, but this is what God has done. Before we go into the next half of the sermon, I just want to speak directly to those here who are not Christians. And this is a second point of application. Non-Christian, consider how bad and helpless your condition is before Christ at this moment. This passage is written to Christians Paul is describing what used to be true of everyone in this room. 
But the most sobering reality about what we're studying today is that these things are still true of you at this very moment if you have not turned to Christ. And this message I'm giving you, I'm kind of dump trucking like this is the way it is. This might be really, really hard to swallow. But you need to deal with it. You need to recognize that according to the Bible, if it has any authority, and that might be a question that you need to work through, but if the Bible is true, this is what it's saying is true of you right now. That right now, according to this passage, you are spiritually dead. Verse 1. You are right now blinded by the lies of a world that hates God. Right now, you are following the leadership of Satan. And right now, you are a slave to your own desires. And for all of those reasons, you are facing the wrath of God. There is a target on your soul, and when it's time, God will pour out his wrath, his righteous wrath on you. He will not miss, you will not escape, and it will never end unless you run to Jesus. Jesus is mighty to save. He will never lie to you. He will never desert you. He will never forsake you. He will give you new life. He will rescue you. He will never stop loving you. So I call on you to turn from your rebellion trust in Jesus today. Run to Jesus. Do it today. But again, this passage, these are things that are true of non-believers, but this passage is written to believers. It's written to Christians, to those who were truly helpless and hopeless. But right now, we're going to look at those two next words, the beautiful words. This is what was true of you, but God did this. Part two, but God did this. Number one, God richly loved you at your worst. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Do you see that? Despite our wretched condition, God set his love on us. He chose to love you long before you were born. In fact, Paul actually goes out of his way to to specify that the strength of God's love never wavered even when you were dead in your trespasses. In other words, God sees you in your spiritually dead body, helpless, useless, hopeless, broken, morally repulsive. And God says, I have loved you, you are mine, and I will never stop loving you. This is mercy. God sees us, helpless, wretched, and he shows us mercy. We don't deserve it. We did not earn it. This is pure mercy and love. So God richly loved you at worst, but God also made you spiritually alive. This is verse 5. By his amazing love, God makes us spiritually alive, but God made us alive together with Christ. Suddenly, in an instant, By a direct act of God, the Christian is a new creation. God replaces cold hearts of stone with a beating heart that wants to please God, that wants to please God forever. And this is what Jesus was talking about when he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. God can make you alive. You were born dead, but God can make you alive. We call this regeneration or rebirth. This is the starting point of new life in Christ. It's the first gasp of air. It's the first beating of a new heart. It's the first movement toward God. You might look the same outside, but you're not the same inside. 
And once God gives you spiritual life, you will never die again. Because, number three, God permanently united you with Jesus. Paul says, by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In in that moment that God saved you and gave you new life, you were united to Jesus in the power of his resurrection. And this is theology that is, it's it's an ocean to dive into and discover the riches of it. But to put it simply, what it means is that all that Jesus accomplished on the cross is now directly applied to Christians. We get forgiveness. We get adoption. We get eternal blessings. We get power over death itself, over spiritual death now, and over physical death later. And that future hope is what Paul focuses on next. Number four, God promises you immeasurable grace and kindness. Look at verse seven. He says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is committed to showcasing his glory, to publicly displaying the glory of his grace and wisdom. He wants to show the wonderful grace and kindness to everyone and everything that has eyes to see. Certainly we who are the recipients of this promised grace and kindness, we are witnesses to his glorious grace. But I think here Paul actually envisions even a bigger audience, even beyond the believers who themselves are personally blessed by this. I think he actually has envisioned beyond just the believers themselves who are saved, I think he is envisioning on a cosmic scale The spiritual beings in heavenly places, the angels themselves, are going to see what God has done for believers, and they're all going to praise him. All will see forever how good and wonderful and marvelous our God is to us, and all will praise him. And all will praise him because we are the trophies of God's grace. This is the next point. God destined you to do good in the world, verses 8 and 10. All will praise God because we are the trophies of his grace Paul goes on to emphasize that salvation is entirely God's work. In fact, in the next few verses, he's going to say the same thing in about seven different ways. He says, for by grace you have been saved. It means it's entirely undeserved. It's through faith. That means it's not our work. It's just simple reliance on Christ's work. He says, this is not your own doing, just in case it wasn't clear. This is not your own doing. This is Christ's doing. That's the third point. He says, it is the gift of God. It's a gift. It's not something that's earned. It's something that's freely given, freely received. That's the fourth one. He says, again, it's not a result of works, just in case it has not been clear yet. Number six, so that no one may boast. God intentionally designed salvation to humble us. That was the plan. He designed salvation so that we who have been saved by the grace of Jesus have nothing to boast in except Jesus. That's the plan. And so then he goes on. He says, because we, and this is the seventh reason, we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, Christian, the story of your life and all the good works you do, your story is actually a part of the bigger story that God's doing. 
It's not that your works save you. In fact, the work that's being done in you is actually God's work, and God has prepared that you would do good works as part of his work in you. Paul takes this whole notion that in some way we can actually earn salvation, and he literally just turns it upside down and says, you've got it all wrong. Or maybe he took something that was upside down and he put it right side up. It's not your works that save you. It's rather God has saved you, and because he has saved you, you now do the works that he has planned for you. I often use these verses in personal evangelism, but Paul is writing to Christians. And I just want you to just think for a moment. Why is it that Paul is emphasizing that salvation is by God's grace to people who are already saved? They're already on their way to heaven. They're going to make it. And he's going out of his way to say, you've got to remember, you've got to understand, it's grace. It's not your effort. It's a gift. None of you can boast. It's all God. Why emphasize that to Christians? I use that in evangelism. You need to know that by grace you can be saved. That's true. But he's writing to Christians. I think it's because the gospel of grace, it's not just for the unsaved. It's also for the saved. And so that leads us into our third application. Tri-County, Mel, and Catherine, and Aaron, never stop preaching the gospel to yourself. You will never outgrow your need to hear and ponder the gospel. You're never going to get to the place where you graduate from needing to think through how the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ applies to your everyday life. You need to preach the gospel to yourself every single day until you see Jesus. You need to rejoice in how astounding God in his grace has been toward you. And as you do, as you understand more of God's amazing grace in your life, you will grow. Number one, you will grow in humility and courage. You will see others as equals at the foot of the cross. You'll have the courage to be honest and transparent about current past, present struggles with sin. When you realize it's all God's work, that grace will have this humbling effect on you. You'll see other people as recipients of your grace, of God's grace. You're not better than anybody. In fact, I was completely undeserving. God gets all the credit. It humbles you, but it also emboldens you to be honest, saying, I was a sinner. I was dead in my sins. God saved me. There's still work to be done, and this is what God's doing, and I need you to help me fight against my sin. So understanding God's grace, it will grow within you. Humility and courage, it will also grow within you. Peace and joy. When you realize that Jesus did all of the work, that your salvation is entirely, absolutely, and exclusively given to you by free grace, you will be free of the anxiety and the fear and the hopelessness that plague so many religious people. Because Jesus said, come unto me and I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. Lay aside all that striving. It's nonsense. It will do nothing to save you. Come to Jesus. Jesus can give you rest. And if you've found Jesus, you're free from that. You serve from a place of of security in Christ. And third, as you grow in understanding of grace, you will also grow in zeal and goodness. It's no longer fear that's motivating your obedience. It's no longer just duty. It's no longer just pride. You're just doing it so that other people think well of you. No, the place that motivates Christians, the source that compels Christians to serve and do good, comes from this understanding of God's grace. 
Christ's love for me, my love for Christ, that's what motivates me. I'm not motivated by pride. I'm not motivated by fear. I'm not motivated by anxiety or duty. I'm motivated by love. The love of Christ controls us. We've concluded this. One has died, therefore all have died, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. Love now motivates you, and love is the most powerful motivator there is. So Christian, get busy. If Jesus died for you, of course you should live for him. We of all people should be marked by zeal for doing good in this world. So Tri-County, and specifically to the three who just got baptized, I encourage you, look around and get busy serving. And serve secure in God's promised grace. Salvation is a miracle. God mercifully raises dead sinners to life. He graciously saves them from his wrath. He rescues them from slavery. And he deploys them to do good in the world. So Christian, Praise God for his grace. And in the assurance of that grace, get busy serving your king with great love and joy. Let's pray. God, we give you all the praise this morning. This is a passage that that strips away any grounds that we would have for boasting in ourselves. It brings us low and then it And then it really lifts us up because it lifts our gaze to Jesus, the one who out of extravagant love and mercy set his love on us, promised to save us, promised to never stop loving us. And so we now breathe the the clean, clear air of grace. We pray, God, that we as individual believers and that we as a church would live in this this culture of grace, that it would cause us as a church to grow in our humility, in our love, and in our joy, and in our peace, and in our zeal, and in the good things that you've called us to do. We look to you, God, the author of our salvation. You're the one who does it from start to finish. We're relying on you, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.